0: You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Sam.
1: And I'm Anish.
0: And we're your hosts. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. We invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hi, everyone. Anish and I sat down for a conversation with Dr. Ellie Reiser, a hospitalist and assistant professor at the University of Vermont Medical Center. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Dr. Reiser. We'd love to just start with where you're from, where you trained, and what you like to do outside of medicine in Vermont.
2: Well, thank you so much, Sam and Anish, for having me. I love your podcast. I listen to it regularly, and I'm really honored to be here. So thank you. I am a mom First and foremost, I have a six-year-old kid named Malcolm. So most of my activities revolve around doing stuff with him in Vermont, like skiing and taking him to karate and playing outside. So that's like my favorite thing to do. And like you mentioned, I'm also a hospitalist at UVM Medical Center, and I have an interest in, uh, I guess you could say harm reduction practices and addiction medicine. So a lot of my career focuses on that. And you're not
0: from Vermont originally, correct?
2: Yeah, I grew up in Olympia, Washington, and I had no idea I wanted to do medicine. I guess you could say I was like a non-traditional student. I went to a state college called the Evergreen State College in Olympia it's like a small liberal art school with no grades and kind of free form. And I studied things like bookbinding and photography, <laughs> like film photography, old school style and art history. And I really loved it, but I didn't know kind of what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a series of events in my life, personal events that impacted my career trajectory and kind of permanently. And I think that's the case for a lot of us in medicine Mm -hmm. is that we're driven by something that happened in our personal lives. And for me, um, that revolved around substance use disorders. And when I was young, I lost a dear friend to an opioid overdose. She was like 23 years old. She was intelligent, bright, lovely young woman. Um, And it was really a senseless death. And So I started thinking about a career around addressing substance use disorders. And I ended up going to LA. I had friends in Los Angeles that worked in treatment and I got a job actually at a couple inpatient drug and alcohol treatment centers. And this was in like the mid 2000s and things have changed quite a lot since then. They changed like all the time still. Um, I think addiction medicine is really fascinating in that way, um, that things are constantly evolving. But I saw things that I guess you know, there's like a carrot and stick method to treatment. And there were things that gave me that made me uncomfortable ethically and things I didn't like about inpatient treatment at that time. And I was introduced, I started volunteering at an awesome syringe service program called Clean Needles Now in LA. And I just was like completely overwhelmed by the incredible work that, um, the people there were doing in terms of improving the lives of people who use drugs, and I was really motivated by the harm reduction model and later by the medical model of addiction and substance use disorder, which isn't perfect, but was so much better than what I had seen working in inpatient treatment. And so I ended up it kind of evolved into me doing a post-bac pre-med program, and I ended up going to University of Washington for medical school, and I also along the way got an MPH there in health services. And then came to UVM very happily for residency. It was like a perfect fit because Vermont is just an amazing place in terms of what we have done in the substance use disorder field Um, with our hub and spoke model of care. And our residency program at the time was like one of the first, I think, really at the forefront of integrating treatment for opioid use disorder into kind of primary care. So part of our primary In the primary care track or for anyone who is interested, you could get your bup waiver and have patients on your panel on buprenorphine or suboxone and get training just as part of your regular internal medicine um, education. And I thought that was amazing. And I think that's where I I think substance use disorder education belongs kind of in also in the internal medicine world, just not just in subspecialty um, education. So that's where I am now.
0: (laughs) We have so many questions about so many different parts of um, you brought up, but thanks for sharing that about how you got to medicine and about your friend. That is a really sad story. And I think one that a lot of people have similar experiences with. So it's great that you're able to make an impact um, now in your career every day.
1: Yeah. One thing about hearing your story a little bit is what you kind of think some of the differences are working in like substance use disorders in LA versus Vermont versus the university of Washington.
2: Well, I think it's not so much. So Vermont is largely rural. So that brings up issues of access that may perhaps be different than access issues in large urban centers like Los Angeles Mm -hmm. or Washington. I think the biggest changes I have seen are in kind of evidence-based treatments over time rather than in geographic location. Sure, there, there are things that are different geographically, but just over the past 10 or 15 years, how we approach treating opioid use disorder has like radically shifted, I, I think, for the better. For example, less than two weeks ago, the FDA announced that you no longer need an X-waiver to prescribe buprenorphine products like Suboxone to treat opioid use disorder, which I totally applaud. I think that's absolutely the right step. We aren't required to have like special licensing or training to prescribe other medications. Um, And so I I think that will improve access greatly. I still think there's a need for education. So people, you know, are prescribing um, in an informed way, but I don't I- I'm glad there's not that, that requirement for an extra number on your DEA license. So, I don't know if you're aware of that. It was just announced. So, yeah,
0: I, I did see it circulating around Mad Twitter. It's a really awesome uh, improvement. Speaking of the hub and spoke model, which I think for both of us going to medical school in Vermont, this is like kind of one of the only models of opioid care that I was familiar with. But I read that Vermont's kind of one of the first, maybe the first state that adopted this model is Vermont alone in this or have other states started to adopt it? And do you know how long Vermont has been um, using this model to treat patients?
2: Yeah. So the Hub and Spoke model of care was developed by Dr. John Brooklyn, who actually gives lectures at Larner College of Medicine. Um, He runs one of our hub clinics, which is synonymous with, uh, it's a methadone clinic. So an intensive outpatient clinic that is licensed to prescribe methadone specifically to treat opioid use disorder. So those are Hub's clinics. I think there are about nine in the state. And then spoke clinics are primarily internal medicine or family medicine clinic, primary care clinics with previously it was people who had an X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. And so the idea was hubs were kind of more high intensity outpatient treatment centers where people would have access to specialty addiction care to methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone even typically methadone or or buprenorphine products. And then once a person had gained enough stability in a hub clinic, they may transfer their care to their primary care doctor in a spoke. And the idea is that the hubs serve as support for people for providers in the community who may not be specialty trained in addiction medicine, that they can offer advice, and that if a patient is struggling and needs more frequent or more intensive visits, they could go transfer back to a hub if need be. So it's like a two-way exchange of information and, and patient support, and it's really improved wait times in Vermont. I don't think there are wait times anymore, and there used to be really, really long wait times, you know, um, not just in Vermont, but all over the country, even like years, people are waiting to get into tr- methadone treatment, for example, and that has resolved now. And in terms of other states, yes, other states and areas have adopted a hub and spoke model of care. You know, the requirements for prescribing methadone for opioid use disorder, like having a quote unquote methadone clinic are, are national. And so methadone clinics are throughout throughout the states but they don't necessarily have kind of this established relationship where people can go back and forth but depending on that there is what level of care they need mm-hmm. to a spoke or to a hub and then there are even places here in Vermont that we kind of refer to as super spokes they may not be um, methadone clinics but like places like our ATP addiction treatment program across the street from the medical center have addiction psychiatry specialist on staff and you know the ability to see patients frequently to offer therapy to offer support groups and uh, social work that kind of thing.
0: That's great. I got to see in my family medicine rotation down at CBMC some patients who had experienced the Hub and Spoke model and had gone back and forth between some pubs and some folks. And it was was very cool to see patients speak so highly of it too, because they had often interacted with systems in different states that were very much not like this, and then coming to Vermont and experiencing this level of care. It's nice to hear that both providers and patients are experiencing so many benefits from just this structure.
2: I think it's a great model. I will say it's not... So there's no cookie-cutter model that fits for every patient. So there are definitely patients who kind of fall through the cracks, who, for example, you know, to be on methadone, to initiate methadone, it typically requires that a person is able to show up to clinic every day, usually pretty early in the morning for several months until they kind of earn take-home doses. So doses for a few days or a week before they have to come back to the clinic. And just imagine, you know, having to go to see her doctor every day for a medication. Like if you have family or job, or in school, like it can be very disruptive. And so for some patients, they just aren't, they don't have the social stability or things are too busy. They aren't able to do that or to meet the requirements of some spoke clinics. So there are other types of clinics. For example, safe recovery is sometimes referred to as a low barriers clinic. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's um, kind of running through the Howard Center in conjunction with a syringe service program there downtown in Burlington. And so they offer care to people who may have difficulty kind of showing up every day or you know, providing urine drug screens that are consistently negative, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There are different models. And I think it's always good to have a multifaceted approach to addiction treatment because one thing might work for one patient at one time in their life and not work later or no, they're just different needs in the community.
1: And do places like safe injection sites and needle exchange sites do those fit within the hub and spoke model or are those kind of like separate things parallel to that system?
2: So they aren't within the hub and spoke umbrella. I would I I think I agree that it would be more of a parallel service, more like boots on the ground harm reduction kind of service. So we do not have a safe injection facility. Here in Vermont, there was one uh, that was opened in New York City somewhat recently in the last year or two, I believe. But there's been legislation and you know advocacy work around safe injection facilities in the state here, but um, nothing's happened yet. I think yeah. making sure wherever people are at, whether they're using or not, making sure they're, safe, they're as safe as they can be is super important, especially in this day and age with fentanyl mm-hmm. and
0: everything. So one thing that you mentioned was integrating harm reduction training into earlier education. And I know that you and Dr. Sobel, another internal medicine doc, organized an early medication-assisted treatment training program into a longitudinal addiction medicine curriculum for us medical students. I know Dr. Brooklyn was also involved in this. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and your goals with introducing this topic earlier on in medical school, as opposed to maybe encountering it for the first time in residency?
2: Yeah. So um, Hallie Sobel, she is the um, assistant program director for the internal medicine residency and was a great mentor to me when I was a resident. Um, She was a PI on this project. We had a SAMHSA grant to do kind of the official X waiver training. So the eight hour training that was required previously required for physicians to obtain a DA license to prescribe buprenorphine products. So we did this for three consecutive years with third year med students. We had, it was like the official training by Dr. Brooklyn and Dr. Sanchit Maruti, some of our local addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry experts. The COVID-19 pandemic barreled its way through our plan. So initially it was supposed to be live and interactive, but like so many things, we pivoted to an asynchronous video, like Zoom kind of format. And so that wasn't like my first choice, but we were kind of forced to do that. But my, my thought was that opioid use disorder is so common. It's, there's so many complications associated with it. And we have really great treatments that reduce mortality, decrease risk of death, decrease risk of overdose, um, improve social outcomes, and that just like we teach about, you know, other medications that improve mortality and other chronic illnesses, we should teach about substance use disorders and specifically opioid use disorder. So that that was my thinking that it belongs somewhere in the mainstream curriculum just like we teach about, you know, managing hypertension or diabetes or heart failure, um, because no matter what specialty you go into, like you are not, you are going to see people with opioid use disorder regularly. It doesn't mean so. So being informed about how we approach that is, I think, important. Even if you weren't the one prescribing Suboxone, mm-hmm. so that that was our approach. And now we've kind of reimagined things. So the third year students this spring, actually in March. We'll be doing, since the X waiver went away, we have a little more freedom to do the teaching as we, we have a little more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing a four-hour training, again, on opioid use disorder and medications for opioid use disorder that I'm looking forward to.
1: Now that the waiver has gone away, is there any particular training people need or is it really just training to feel comfortable doing it, but nothing's actually required for providers to prescribe it now?
2: So currently my understanding is that you, anyone with a DEA license, may prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. However, the DEA did mention that there will be an educational component that's required. And they said, kind of like to be determined, we'll let you know. So it hasn't been officially announced what that will be or like when it needs to be or or what. But for now, we're in a public health crisis with people dying young people dying from overdose. And so I think the idea is just to make it as easy as possible and support providers and physicians or and and patients to get these meds kind of available to
0: people. Anish and I were in part of the cohort who did it on Zoom. And it was it was actually still a very good train. I think Dr. Brooklyn is very, very engaging even, (laughs) even you know through the internet. But it was I think it's just helpful too to just be introduced In such a thorough way to the topic of care of these patients, because it is kind of absent from the rest of medical education. So I think just having early interactions with it is helpful, even if you need refreshers on how to actually prescribe medications and whatnot later on. I think just getting into that mindset was really helpful for us, at least.
2: That's good to hear.
0: And
1: does getting rid of the X waiver requirement does that make it easier at all? Different to like start on patients in the hospital or continue for patients that are admitted for like other reasons, or does that not really impact that at all?
2: That's actually a really interesting question. So I think there's some misperceptions about what meds you can use in-house. So you do not need special licensing and X waiver. You never did to prescribe medications for opioid use disorder in hospitalized patients. You Mm. can start methadone for opioid use disorder. You can start buprenorphine products, including Suboxone, You can start Naltrexone, any of those things in-house. The only caveat is there are some regulations around prescribing for patients who are admitted with a primary diagnosis of opioid use disorder Mm. or withdrawal. So it's kind of getting into the weeds, but there are restrictions around, like, for example, methadone could only be prescribed for 72 hours and then like, it's no longer okay to prescribe but we almost never admit patients with a primary diagnosis of opioid use disorder it's a secondary issue going on they're there for an infection or you know an mi or whatever their primary diagnosis is so it's usually a non issue Hmm. You did in the past up until two weeks ago uh, to prescribe buprenorphine when a patient leaves the hospital. So often they need a bridge for a few days to get to their outpatient provider at a hub or a spoke. You did need an X waiver to send that script to an outpatient pharmacy. And we cannot send, in most circumstances, can't send a script for methadone for opioid use disorder to just a regular pharmacy. If it's Hmm. for a pain indication, it's a different, there are different laws around that. But for opioid use disorder, it specifically needs to be done in a meth- methadone clinic.
1: I'm just curious, what are your thoughts or opinions on like people who are admitted for like, severe pain, like post-op or something, continuing their home suboxone methadone versus I've heard some people like stop it and do different opioids instead.
2: Yeah, I think acute pain management and people who have opioid use disorder is it's a really tricky topic. Like I think patients get scared. And nervous about what's going to happen. Perhaps they've had bad experiences beforehand. There's a lot of stigma. They may have had interactions with medical teams previously, and it didn't go well in in their view. Providers as well, there are not good guidelines or data. There are no like randomized controlled trials telling us what to do with someone's home buprenorphine perioperatively. And so I think it's really important to understand the pharmacology of each medication that could be used. So if if someone's on methadone or if they're on buprenorphine or naltrexone, understanding how those meds work can help you devise a treatment plan. My pearl for you is if you have a patient with opioid use disorder, whether they're on a medication like methadone or bup or whatever, or they've been in remission with no medications for a long time. The indications to use an opioid analgesic are exactly the same as the indications for someone who does not have a substance use disorder. And there's a misconception that you're going to put someone at risk of return to use, that you're going to cause harm if you treat them with an opioid for their pain. And that's not accurate. Yes, you want to have an open conversation with your patient. You want to know where they stand, what their thoughts are on an opioid. But if you're think if they were there, they didn't have an opioid use disorder, and you were thinking of starting... You know, morphine, dilated, what have you. You should probably think about starting those meds if they have an opioid use disorder, too. It's just important to have informed consent discussion. And like all other patients, like multimodal pain control works best. So, anytime, like, add that schedule to acetaminophen. If they can tolerate an NSAID, they don't have a contraindication, have that available. Do they need a gabapentin? Do they need, you know, ice, heat? Do you need, is it something, you know, where they could have a nerve block? Can you call your friends in anesthesia to get a nerve block on board? Are there ways where you could reasonably avoid an opioid safely? You know, maybe maybe there are, maybe I've had patients on ketamine drip. So there are all kinds of things you can do to help people's pain, but don't be afraid to use an opioid analgesic. Mm-hmm. My my other pearl for you is that if you have a patient you're admitting, they have acute pain, and they're on either a buprenorphine product or methadone, and they've been on it for a, a while, presumably, those meds are not providing analgesia. So continuing those meds are preventing them from being in withdrawal and having cravings. It's not providing analgesia. So don't think of those meds as analgesia. There are things you can do to kind of maximize some of those analgesic properties. So buprenorphine, for example, um, it's a partial agonist. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want me to go like down the nitty gritty details on buprenorphine. I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll do it. (laughs) I'm going to nerd out. So with buprenorphine, it's really interesting because it's a partial opioid agonist, which means it acts on those mu receptors in the central nervous system. It it binds them very, very tightly and it elicits kind of a partial response. So in contrast to heroin, morphine, fentanyl, when it binds to those receptors at increasing doses, you can approach a full 100% response with analgesia, with respiratory depression, you know, with CNS depression and ultimately like overdose and death, right? With buprenorphine, you can crank that dose up And you hit what's called kind of a ceiling effect. So the response curve flattens out. You don't meet 100% response. So there's much less risk of respiratory depression, sedation, and it makes it a bit safer. It's not that you couldn't overdose on buprenorphine. It's just much less likely. It's much more uncommon. What we don't know is if there's a ceiling effect with buprenorphine for analgesia. So it has some quite um, a useful medication for Pain management and chronic pain, particularly in patients who have other risk factors to have respiratory issues, for example, obesity hypoventilation syndrome or OSA or like severe COPD, perhaps that might be a bit safer medication than a full agonist. It's also super long acting. So the half-life is like over 24 hours. And what you see is there's a if you check someone's serum level, like periodically after you give them a dose of bup, what you'll see is that their serum level of buprenorphine spikes within the first hour or two, and then comes down over the course of about six to eight hours and flattens out for like 24 hours, you get a very low serum level. That is really important for treatment of opioid use disorder, it prevents withdrawal and it decreases craving. So that's why for opioid use disorder, you dose buprenorphine products like Suboxone once a day, while for pain management, someone's taking bup every six or eight hours. And so you can take advantage of that in the hospital. You can split someone's dose, say they're taking 12 milligrams, you could give them three or four milligrams every eight hours or so. But that's really not going to provide a lot of analgesia. That, Like if they have mild pain, maybe that's enough with some acetaminophen. But really, you're going to need to use full agonists, you know, for moderate or severe pain, most likely. Mm. Um, and what you need to keep in mind, my other pearl for you, is that you are going to need to be prepared to use opioid doses that are a bit outside of your comfort zone, mm. meaning the doses that work for someone who is opioid naive or has a low tolerance are unlikely to be as effective for someone who's on buprenorphine, who already has a tolerance and already has those mu receptors, at least partially saturated with buprenorphine. That bup binds really tightly and more tightly than most of our, our full agonists. So you're going to need to choose something with a strong affinity. So those things are typically fentanyl or dilaudid, and you're going to need to be prepared to use higher doses than you usually would. There may be some dose finding involved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are no great guidelines on or great studies on whether or not to some people stop buprenorphine in a perioperative setting. Many institutions have slightly different guidelines. There's a lot of expert opinion. I would say there was a meta analysis looking at, at kind of the trials that are, are available, Most well, mostly cohort studies. Um, and they're like, the evidence is not good, like <laughs> low quality evidence. Everybody seems to be leaning towards keeping Suboxone on board because mm-hmm. that is less destabilizing for the patient. It doesn't require reinducing, restarting someone on buprenorphine down the road. And you typically can achieve adequate analgesia with scheduled opioids on top, full agonists on top of their bup. That I think that's a trend we're starting to see. And I think it makes pharmacologic sense. I okay. See. That's my spiel on buprenorphine.
1: If someone stopped their buprenorphine, how long can they stop it for and you can just restart it versus you have to re-titrate it up? Or can you always just restart their old dose?
2: So it depends on the the context. I've had patients who, you know, they come in, they have acute pain, they haven't taken their bup at home for a few days. It's out of their system, usually like 48 hours is kind of what I would expect, And so, you know, they're getting a full agonist for their pain. That's probably not the the right time to start buprenorphine because you run the risk of precipitating withdrawal in that scenario. If you do a typical initiation protocol, Mm -hmm. which would involve having your patient go through mild withdrawal, like holding all opioid agonists having them develop mild to moderate withdrawal symptoms and then starting like a test dose of bup. And if it goes, okay, you give them more. So start with two or four milligrams and give them more. But if someone's in acute pain, like asking them to be an opioid withdrawal and have pain on top of that, like that's a recipe for disaster. Like that's not humane. So we really should not be doing that. There are some really interesting developments, which we're hoping to bring to UVM very shortly but you may have heard of low-dose buprenorphine initiation protocols. It's also called the Bernoulli method or micro-inductions. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea is that you just give them a little sprinkle of buprenorphine while someone's on a full agonist and that won't precipitate withdrawal. So you give them a half milligram or a milligram to start out with and then you slowly build up that dose over the course of five, seven or more days. So up to a milligram daily, then two. They're, They're kind of different flavors of that type of initiation protocol. But that is also a really promising way, I think, to approach pain and opioid use disorder in the hospital in these scenarios. And I hope that we'll have kind of standardized protocols at UVM shortly. We're working on it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great to hear. Those are all really, really helpful clinical pearls. And interesting that there's not a lot of good, high quality evidence. Do you think
1: on the whole, it's pretty protocolized at the institution level? Or do you find like your colleagues in the other hospitals do things like very differently?
2: I think we all like it's a pretty collaborative environment. So if we ever have a tricky case, I feel very comfortable talking with my colleagues about it. And I hope they feel comfortable talking with me about it. And we have incredible addiction psychiatry colleagues. So I, I think we discuss cases frequently if it, it's something complex.
0: So one other thing we really wanted to talk to you about was we read that the Department of Emergency Medicine uh, recently announced the receipt of a new grant, a $3.75 year MAT prescription drug and opioid addiction grant from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And you are one of the co-investigators on this grant. Could you tell us a little bit more about the aims of this project and what your role will be?
2: Yeah, so I am really lucky to work with some, an incredible team of folks. So, Roz King, Dan Wolfson, Rick Rawson, among others, are involved with this grant. And they actually started STAR 1.0, was five years previously. Um, and that grant specifically was looking at starting patients in the emergency department on Suboxone and then discharging them with very close follow up. So, people would come in withdrawal. Um, request Suboxone, they'd be given a dose in the ED. And if everything went well, they'd be discharged with follow-up, ideally like the next day or at least within 72 hours. And then to expand upon that, we're now doing the STAR 2.0 grant, which is looking also at methadone. So starting methadone in the emergency setting and also have expanded that to the inpatient setting. So we're looking at starting patient new starts for buprenorphine products for hospitalized patients, as well as new starts for methadone. So I'm kind of in charge of coordinating the inpatient arm of that work we're doing. And I think, especially in this era in Vermont and across the country, having access to methadone in addition to buprenorphine, like it is so important because with fentanyl pretty ubiquitously in the heroin supply, it's a bit trickier to get people stabilized, started and stabilized on Suboxone. Mm. Um, And so it's really important to have that as a viable treatment option with low barriers to starting that in-house as well, because people do bet, like, My other pearl for you is really discharging a patient with active opioid use disorder from the hospital with low or no tolerance to opioid is extremely dangerous Mm -hmm. unless they ask for that, which in my career, I've had like one patient ask me about. So most patients aren't going to be asked to be tapered off everything and, you know, So don't taper someone off their meds if that's not what they want, unless there's a clear medical indication or a safety issue, like discharging someone with no tolerance who has not had their opioid use disorder, kind of, if there's a high likelihood they're going to continue using and they don't have an adequate support network and treatment plan, that's extremely dangerous. And we want to avoid that. So my pearl is respect the tolerance. Consider that when you're discharging someone and make your best effort to offer an evidence-based treatment like methadone or buprenorphine if they aren't already on it. If they want it, we should absolutely start people on that before they leave.
0: Right. And that must be one of the aims of this grant that has continued from five years ago, making sure you catch all of those extra patients who maybe would just be discharged and then have to find their way back to substance use treatment rather than just going straight forward from the hospital.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. So we want to make sure that anybody who's interested in a medication for opioid use disorder has access to it and has support. And we also, there are a lot of other facets to our project as well. So we offer peer recovery coach consultations. So we have an incredible Group of people with lived experience who are in long term recovery who come into the hospital and will meet patients where they're at, offer support, give them resources outside of the hospital if they're interested. And they will also follow them longitudinally, I think even a week or two after they leave the hospital, check in, see how they're doing, see if there's anything they need um, support wise. So that's a really incredible service that's part of the study as well. We have harm reduction kits that we provide. We, we try to keep it like multifaceted.
1: Thanks for talking with us. It's really interesting. Some of the pearls that are going to be useful for us kind of in the IM field going forward and I guess any provider.
0: Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for going through all of those different topics and it'll be exciting to see what comes of this, this grant in the next couple of years.
2: Well, thank you both so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Anish Single. And I'm Sam Shoots. And thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.